Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wildlife Journeys. I'm your co-host, Emma. And I'm your co-host, Dan. And today we have a awesome guest who is uh, a master of the avian world, uh, Mr. Edward Landy. Edward, if you would like to uh, tell us a little bit about your, your background. Yes. Hello. My name is Edward Landy, L-A-N-D-I, not with a Y. I'm known as the bird guy in my friend group, in my immediate circle, and I have turned that from a hobby into a career, and uh, I currently am employed by a bird conservation organization called Bird Conservancy of the Rockies here in Fort Collins, Colorado. I am an avian ecologist working on multiple conservation projects. And I got here through my background in lots of field work with wild birds, uh, mostly songbirds. So let's uh, let's start at the very beginning. Where where does your your passion for wildlife first start? Yeah, it definitely started when I was a kid. Uh, definitely a very common uh, pipeline was Steve Irwin, I have to say, and uh, I definitely. Yeah, definitely loved any like media and especially books. Um, I was a pretty slow reader when I was a child, so I liked books with pictures in them. And those pictures usually had animals. And so I actually, my first love was like reptiles and like lizards. I loved, I love lizards. And I used to catch lizards uh, outside my house all the time. And uh, that kind of evolved into snakes. I like snakes a lot. And um then I picked up a field guide one day when I was a kid, and I loved the the process of 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 really field identification of birds. And um, a lot of people have a spark bird. I think you are in this field, and mine mine wasn't too exciting, but it was a great crested flycatcher, which is a uh, yes, a species of of in in the flycatcher family that is in North America during the summer and. They can be kind of hard to identify if you've never done it before. And and I kind of like the process of it, of like using the field guide. And and that was probably when I was like in seventh grade. And then kind of from there, I got really into it. And in high school, I started like keeping a list of everything I saw. And, and I would volunteer at the Museum of Natural Sciences in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I'm from. And I got a lot of experience there with the ornithologists on staff. And I learned how to ban birds. I learned how to make study specimens. Uh, and then I kind of continued my journey at NC State University in, in Raleigh, North Carolina in wildlife biology. And I got a bunch of field jobs every summer and kind of jumped around the country a bit and worked on different projects, mostly songbirds. And, and yeah, and I kind of definitely decided that I wanted to be possibly in academia, definitely do like research. And so I uh, pursued a master's in biology at Colorado State University Pueblo in Colorado. And and I studied a bird called a Cassin Sparrow that breeds on the shortgrass prairie. And kind of my whole research, there's lots of different things you can do with birds. And I was definitely, I definitely had a lot of experience in spatial ecology, especially putting trackers on birds or tags as they call them and and I used a solar power tag uh that 
the data was collected by an automatic telemetry system. A lot of people in this field do uh, radio telemetry, and this was kind of the same technology, except it was like an you didn't have to go out per se and track down the bird. It kind of the the signal was uh, triangulated for you uh, on these receivers in a grid. And so I, I used a system like that to essentially record locations of the Cass and Sparrow in southeastern Colorado. And uh, I am currently finishing that project up right now. And, and I'm looking a lot at, like, did they like to eat grasshoppers? Did they go where the grasshoppers were? Did they go where the shrub cover was? Uh, there's not a lot known about them. So I, I definitely have always kind of had a, a love for, for species that we don't know a whole lot about. And then, so when you were growing up, um, you grew up in Raleigh? Yes. I yeah. grew up yes. born and raised. Yeah. So um, going back to what you were saying about um, growing up, was there a time in high school where you were like, yeah, I think I want to major in this? Or um, did you kind of figure that out as you were going to NC State? Yeah, I definitely like kind of figured out that I wanted to major in it and it was I definitely was pretty concerned with the title at first. And then I think once I got into school, I kind of realized that a lot of people go a lot of different places and have a lot of different backgrounds. And it's like definitely experience that matters. And um, and so I, I did I did pursue, I mean, I just in my backyard, there's an amazing wildlife program. It's the same one that Dan did. And that's how, how we met. Um, and so I, yeah, I, I definitely was drawn to that program and that title and um but I, I think I was definitely drawn to like the the experience is that I wanted to get because like that's kind of how you get jobs in this field. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so was it your time at the museum that first showed you that you could really have a career in this field? And how did how did you get involved? First, get involved with the the museum. Yeah, it definitely was the museum that showed me that um, just because I did a lot of field work with them, actually, for them being a museum. But uh, the ornithologists there kind of wore a lot of hats. And I, I actually started uh, I started in a volunteer program for teenagers in high school. And it was the idea was you'd come in every week and actually like do hus like animal husbandry and take care of their animals there. They're actually... They have a lot of animals. They have like, when I was there, it was like 300 program animals that they use, yeah, for programs. And they, they do them for birthday parties. They do them for events. And they're, and they're anything from little poison dart frogs to, I mean, they have snapping turtles and uh, kind of everything in between. And so I would, I would help, you know, I would help with the snakes a lot, uh, kind of just changing their like paper. And, and so it was like very husbandry focused, but if you were there for a while, they would like let you shadow someone who worked at the museum and, uh, and they would like let you do that instead of animal husbandry if you wanted to. And like, if that's how you wanted to use your time. So I started, I started going to the collections, the bird collections, which they have down, they have in the, um, basement of the museum and it's it's I don't know how many individuals they have but it's a lot of study skins and some of them coming from like the 1800s and so I started volunteering there every week and I would actually I learned how to like skin birds and then uh, through that I 
Yeah, the ornithologist there, they had a baning station in Raleigh, and so I would tag along with that. And that's kind of how I got, like, my bird baining experience pretty early on. Um, and I definitely, like, learned how to – I mean, that was a super important skill because it kind of, like, opened a lot of doors for, uh, like, research opportunities and jobs and whatnot. So, yeah, I, I kind of started – I kind of just uh, – they the, the museum is great because there are lots of opportunities and – and I had, yeah, this very specific interest that they kind of help foster and grow. No, but that's that's really cool. And we've talked about this in this podcast before about like how far volunteering can take you. Um, and that's really how you can make your first connections, um, especially if you don't have, you know, prior um, professional experience when you're getting started in the field. So that sounds like a really cool opportunity and that you learned a lot there. Um, and then could you tell us, and Dan, you might already know about this, but um, could you tell us about your first like field job and how you got um, involved in that? Yeah, I mean, I kind of had, I did eventually get paid by the museum, but probably like the first one that I applied to outside of my like comfort circle that was far away from home was in New Mexico. And it was a summer... I spent a summer on Sevieta National Wildlife Refuge about a mile, I mean, about an hour, one hour drive south of Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I was helping, I was a field technician uh, for a grad student at the University of Toledo, actually. And uh, they essentially were doing they had turned their undergrad project into, they like had essentially a field job and they turned it into their grad project. And, but they were based off um, Ohio. And so they like kind of kept it up. And, and that was my, that project was my first one. And it was on this species of bird called the, the gray vireo. And they are, they've gotten a bad rap, like Sibley, the bird guide guy calls them like drab and like boring and, um yeah and and there not a lot of not a lot of birds are known from that like ecosystem the the pinion it's called like the um the pinion juniper uh woodland area and and so it's like pinion pine and juniper and these grave areas really like the the junipers there and so i my job was to was to do radio telemetry on them, and it was actually focused on fledgling. So it was finding a lot of my job was looking for nests and not finding them. And then when we found them, we would put uh, we would put radio transmitters on the fledglings right before they're about to leave the nest, and we follow them around and track their survival and uh, kind of saw. And like we would measure vegetation structure or like every day when, when we found them to kind of, the, the whole project was saying like what, uh, what helped their survival. And so you could kind of manage for them better. And it was really focused on the fledgling grave areas. And yeah, they're, they're a cool little bird that um, they're, yeah, they're very like humble birds, I, I think. And they have a, they have a pretty song. They're, you know, like a little shy and, um, uh, yeah, it was like a fun species to kind of get to know for a summer. And that was my first field job. And it was hard. Yeah. I mean, we were out there six days a week, um, 
kind of in the hot New Mexico desert. It, it was pretty hilly too. Like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like mountains, but it was, I mean, it, it there were some canyons and like some pretty steep hills and it was rocky. And um, I remember definitely asking myself like, am, oof, I don't know, like, can I keep doing this? And, and uh, you know, cause yeah, field jobs are hard on the, on the body and the mind. Cause you, you got to get up early and um, yeah, a lot of stamina. But I, I loved it. I fell in love with New Mexico. Um, I would definitely, I would, I would definitely move back there, and and um, I definitely want to take more trips there too. And um, yeah, it's a really beautiful place. It's kind of like my first experience um, being in the West for like a long time. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's it's unfortunate that in our field a lot of times the animals that aren't as spectacular looking or get called drab kind of get overlooked but yeah. I, I think you in particular are someone that has done a really good job of putting importance on on animals like that and um kind of pushing forward learning about them both with those vireos and, and the cassin sparrow because i think they're another one that i think sparrows in general get overlooked a lot yeah, they they do, and they're kind of called you know LBJs, little brown jobs, and um, and I mean they're hard to identify. Yeah, they're not as colorful, but they have. I mean they have beautiful songs, and um, they've actually turned out to be a sparrows have turned out to be a great group of birds for ornithologists to study and learn about other birds. Uh, like song sparrow is probably one of the most published species of bird out there um and actually a lot of what we know and then like white crab sparrows a lot of what we know about like song development comes from um studies of yeah white crown sparrows yeah yeah it can be you can miss a lot when you overlook a species that's not spectacular looking and i you yeah. also hit on i guess the hardships of field work which i think emma definitely had when she was in in the hills of Southern Ohio, more so than I think I've experienced. But... Yeah, radio telemetry in hilly areas is rough. <laughs> it is, yeah. And it's like you're not, I don't think people understand, like you're not on a trail. Like you just kind of like go wherever the the signal takes you. And, yeah. And yeah, I mean, you're, you're walking through like unestablished territory where no human has gone before. And it's, there's, I mean, depending on where you are, yeah. I mean, there's lots of vegetation in the way. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if you ran into this issue, but um, where I was in Southern Ohio, like the signals would bounce off of different hills. Mm -hmm. So like if we were in like a valley or something, um, the rattlesnake could be behind us, but it would sound like it was in front of us because the way the signal was bouncing, that was just how our equipment worked. So we'd spend like an hour walking in the wrong direction before realizing you're actually supposed to be walking the opposite direction. So yeah. Radio telemetry is brutal. It's fun though. <laughs> yeah. I think there's yeah. something yeah. about ecologists that it's been a common theme already that you, you do these crazy jobs that have you at crazy hours doing crazy work. And then you're like, I love it. I want more. Like, yeah. Yeah. It always brings you back. I mean, I, I haven't really had like a free summer in probably 10 years and because I'm out doing something. So, but uh, yeah, it always brings you back. 
Um, and then also I have a question. I might keep this in or cut it out. Um, but about white crown sparrows specifically. Um, so I know they have like different dialects by region. Um, and at my old place here in Oregon, there is this one white crown sparrow that would just sing like, or yeah, sing like at various hours in the middle of the night. Like while I was finishing up my um, masters, I pulled up, pulled a lot of all-nighters and it would be like 1 a.m., 3 a.m. It would just sing and then stop. Like, do you, is that normal for them? I tried to look it up. I couldn't find much. Yeah, no, there's, uh, actually my study species, I've come across that before and they're very different sparrows, but, um, I, yeah, I don't know if it's like urban light or went on. I mean, I, one time I went out to go help, uh, so a lab mate who was studying, like we were trying to catch jackrabbits and it was on my same study site. And um, yeah, there was a, it was like midnight and there was a cast and sparrow, a couple of them singing. And it it was like pretty remote place. And so like, there's not a whole lot of light, but um, yeah, I think they do that. And I, I think it's like, maybe they just have so many hormones that they're, that they just like want to sing all the time. And um uh, instead of like that i think that definitely has something to do with it i don't i don't know what the benefit of it would be maybe it's like it's it's dark and predators can't see them and but like they can still communicate their song and maybe the they'll wake up their hard-working mates that are incubating their eggs for them and um yeah yeah i don't know yeah. but yeah no definitely birds sound different across regions too which is also another very interesting Bird, yeah. Bird topic. But you you also touched on moving into the desert. So you grew up in the Piedmont of North Carolina, a very very humid place with lots of woods, and then you moved to a com the complete opposite, pretty much, besides the the heat, but very dry and sandy. So what was that like? How was the adjustment? Yeah, like I'm I'm in Colorado now and it's still really dry. And when I got here, I was in Pueblo, Colorado, which is also a very hot, dry place in the rest compared to the rest of Colorado. And um it felt pretty nice. Like I remember the the temperature wasn't quite as bad, but like it definitely sneaks up on you, especially when it gets drier in the winter, I noticed. I like would have to sleep with the humidifier because it was like, yeah, it was pretty dry and and like you always have to have chapstick. Um a big thing too and yeah your skin is just dry too and so it, like it definitely feels nicer uh but it, it does sneak up on you and um you know sometimes i'll need like eye drops or any, or something because like my eyes are so dry uh, especially if it's like windy too um, and yeah it's like dehydration can sneak up on you too as well um it's like a it's like a very comfortable living out in the desert it's like very comfortable to get dehydrated um especially coming from the humidity just because like yeah it's just like temperatures comparing temperatures between east and west is just different and um and yeah like a, like 100 degrees here doesn't feel the same as like back home and i think i actually have a harder time when i go back home with the humidity um than when i like return here yeah i feel the same way that's even more intense than like North Carolina, but 
every time I come home from Oregon to Ohio, again, not as dry as the desert where I'm at in Oregon, but again, it's been like yeah. almost 90 degrees every day, but it, when I go home, it's 90 degrees in Ohio, it is so much worse. So I love the yeah. dry air. It's, it's better. Yeah. And your bread doesn't go as moldy as fast. Like I noticed that, which was really nice. It's great. Cause bread's expensive these days. Yeah. And this economy. <laughs> so jumping back into your journey. So you took a tech job in New Mexico and then you come back to NC state and then what's next from there. Yeah, so that New Mexico job was the summer before my senior year of college. And there were a couple other jobs that I remember seeing that I really wanted. And one in particular was with uh, SHARP, which is an acronym. It is Salt Marsh Habitat uh, and Avian Research uh, Program. And that is actually a conglomerate of five New England universities. And so I essentially applied to work for this program and I, you kind of like sort of pick a project within that program. And I chose one through University of Maine where I was looking at, um, there's six focal species across pretty much from Maine to New York. And it was a row, it was different from other field jobs because we weren't in the same place. We actually moved around every two weeks between New York and Maine. And we were on salt marshes. And this, the main two species were salt marsh sparrow and Nelson sparrow, but they also had four other sparrows. Um, I think it was like song sparrow, swamp sparrow, um, savannah, and vesper, I believe. And so we essentially went around and like got blood samples from all these as many sparrows as we could in the time we were given at all these like kind of established plots. Um, and for me, I was like, I'm always kind of drawn to places I haven't been before. So we got to spend some time in Maine, which I hadn't been to before in New Hampshire. Um, and that was really cool. Uh, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, they're really interesting salt marshes and the whole ecosystem there is, uh, is pretty, it's pretty interesting. And, and so that that was a job I got, and I did that for the whole summer. Um, we like started in actually New York on Long Island and some parts of Queens, um, and then we went to Connecticut. Uh, after Connecticut, we went to like kind of New Hampshire area, then we went to Maine, and then we did it all again. Um, and and yeah, it was it was fun because. I got really, I got a lot of experience like drawing blood from birds, which you do on like the the brachial vein, so like the vein that goes across their on their arm. And uh, we also did like point count surveys too, as well in the marshes. Um, and that was very different from New Mexico because I was in a marsh and it was wet, and it was a whole, yeah, it was a whole slew of different field conditions you had to deal with. Like it was. Um, you know, there's like salt, you know, it's like if things got kind of like wet, you know, you have to worry about like the salt water. Um, and we would have to, you know, these sites, some of them were just kind of randomly selected on a map. And so it was, you know, we had to deal with like kind of making sure we weren't crossing like private property and we were, you know, we could safely get to the site because actually all of our sites were technically accessible by foot. But 
there was usually if it was like high tide it was really hard to like walk to the site because it was underwater and some of them some of them you like kind of sink in we got pretty lucky we didn't have a lot of those but like i think farther south the marshes are kind of sort of stinkier i want to say it's not really a technical term but they like i remember being at this one site that was actually at the end of a the tarmac at JFK and it was a marsh and it had a lot of birds. It was great, but there was like the threat there of like sinking. I remember like sinking down to my waist a lot and I was like, I might actually get stuck. Um, and so those, yeah, it's like, it's just interesting with field jobs, like the, all the different conditions and kind of dealing with that, like with essentially water versus no water. And, you know, it do with like, we had like rain days there. Um, it also got, there's also like a heat wave one week in Connecticut. It got up to like a hundred degrees. And so when it gets that hot, you know, it's not only is it is it probably not the best for you to be out there, like in the open marsh, so exposed, but also yeah, it's not safe for the birds you're handling too. So you have to think about the welfare of the species that you're handling it. Um luckily in, in New Mexico that we were you know, we were there pretty early and um and you know we yeah it was easier to deal with but i think there it was yeah it was just it was just hot 100 degrees there was really hot because it's because of the humidity um and we also had a truck in new mexico that we could do field work from this was like so like when we took blood samples in new mexico it was we could do it like an air-conditioned truck because it was like kind of close to a dirt road but out here we were out in the middle of a marsh and so like sometimes we brought a beach umbrella but it was still really hot um but yeah, that, that was a fun job. I really like that one because I got to kind of go birding all like up and down the, the like New England. And I'd never been to Maine before. So I had like a lobster roll and I got to see some really, really pretty places too. But yeah, that's like another cool part about ecology and being in this field and doing field work is not only the ability to, or the, you know, yeah, the ability to travel all over the U.S. for these various field jobs, but also I think you get to learn the, it helps you understand, um, you know, uh, different ecological regions of the U.S. better and kind of just overall um, improves your understanding of, especially bird species. Um, I don't know. I love to nerd out over like range maps and migratory maps of birds. Um, and so I feel like, yeah, moving around that much you really get to understand different regions and their species and i was yeah it's like these two there are two species the saltmarsh sparrow and the nelson sparrow and one breeds like pretty much from like northern massachusetts north the nelsons and then the saltmarsh sparrow it kind of it like the northern edge of its range is like northern massachusetts where the nelson sparrows kind of start and so we were actually in like a hybrid zone um and so that was kind of cool because like their ranges overlap and they hybridize in this very small area from like essentially from like uh like kind of Cape Cod to southern Maine and they um to South Thomas Thomaston Maine is kind of like the the town where it sort of stops and um that was really cool and, and that that group has done a lot of research on that because they they think they're hybridizing more because the saltmarsh sparrow is declining and it actually was it is kind of under review for endangered species listing and they yeah they think they might be hybridizing maybe more because their population is lower um i think they're still figuring that out but yeah they they definitely are 
or hybridizing. What's it what's it like trying to identify those hybrids? Because like I, when I was in Fort Wayne, we were right in like the overlap zone between the, the Carolina chickadee and the black cap chickadee. And it gets so frustrating in certain spots. Like, yeah, no, that that's interesting. It was kind of a similar way because, um, well, these two species, they look a lot, they do actually look a lot different than like if you were to take a black caps and a Carolina chickadee, those two look very similar and can only really be differentiated by song. But these two, they actually had, the two species actually do look different enough. However, this group has been has kind of discovered that you you can tell the two species apart, but you can't tell the hybrids apart from the two species. So like the hybrids don't look any different from either one or the other. And so in the field, you actually can't technically, from their data of like 300 birds, you, they like they essentially scored the plumage and then they took a blood sample and then they discovered that the hybrids yeah, the hybrids look the exact same as their parents. Um, even like kind of no, and there weren't even that many like first generation hybrids. They're all like very back crossed. So like they've been, they've they're essentially like on one side of the spectrum or the other. Like they, you know, there's like a first generation hybrid, and then they kind of started breeding with like either one or the other, and then they their traits just kind of became very back crossed. And so like, there's not that many that are actually like first generation hybrids that are like 50, 50. They're, they're kind of, they, they're kind of like a little bit of, it's either like a saltmarsh sparrow with like a little bit of Nelson sparrow or like a Nelson sparrow with like a little bit of saltmarsh sparrow and whichever is dominant, they just look like their parent species. And, um, and so like we, we would actually, yeah, I mean, we, I going into it, I kind of thought you could tell a hybrid apart um but definitely leaving it i was like yeah it's either one or the other and we would have to identify them to species um but we would also like score the plumage in that which is essentially where you give it base you know you'll pick like the crown or the back and you'll give it like a ranking of like one to five based on like how dark it is or how light it is and um and that happens regardless of what species it, it is. So we we did a lot of that too, which is kind of cool because it was uh, we didn't really have to necessarily like identify like call it a hybrid, um, which is good because I think a lot of people do that and um, and there just isn't like enough information out there to be like yeah that's definitely a hybrid. Um, we yeah I mean we've we have some interesting hybrids here in Colorado too. It's but it's not like a common. It's not it's usually like kind of like an anomaly. Lazuli bunting and or lazuli bunting and uh, indigo bunting like hybridize here a little bit, but they, I mean, the hybrids look pretty distinct from from their parents. So, I just wanted to ask what any field positions were um, after your experience on the East Coast before you went to um, uh, out to Colorado and. Did those kind of bring you closer to um, your master's degree or how did that kind of, how did that journey um, happen? Yeah. I mean, I never, yeah, I never got like super lucky with that. I actually, um, I think it definitely helped because one project I work on, I worked on was a project that my now advisor had worked on too. 
when uh, she was my age. And it's a very long, ongoing banding project on the Gulf Coast of Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. And it was kind of run by, it's been going on for probably like 20 plus years. And um, so she recognized that position when I applied for the master's program. And so that helps because um, I think she knew that from after her doing that job, she definitely knew like what it, the experience I had gotten um, that helped. But I mean, I had applied to probably seven to nine different positions and I'd only got like an interview for one. So it's like definitely rough out there um, to like apply. And I, it definitely wasn't, you know, I definitely had to like kind of push the process and like really stick my nose and every, and just really apply to everything. Um, this, I think the position I got actually didn't even really, it didn't even like really like list. It was a really short post and it, it listed, uh, it didn't even like list the species. I think it just said like grassland birds. Um, and it might not have even said that. And so like, I just applied to it. Um, they were actually, they were actually looking to hire like five people to study five different, you know, from mammals to herbs and, and to, to birds. And so I got the bird one, but yeah, I definitely had to apply to a lot. And, and yeah, I mean, just having experience, just as much experience as possible helped. And um, you're definitely not going to have everything that the posting says. Like, I definitely didn't, like, especially with R. And I, I learned that when when I got into grad school. But, yeah, I definitely found this, my master's position, just from, I think, a diversity of experience and also kind of focusing, too. Yeah, it's it's so cool to see how it's almost like a legacy where you worked on a tech position that your then advisor had worked on and it kind of got it noticed. So that's always cool. They always, people sometimes talk about like your, your academic lineage and like your advisors, like your, your, your parent, and then your lab mates, your siblings, um, and I think it's cool to kind of walk in walk in their footsteps in that way, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, like my I didn't realize that how big of a deal my like advisor's advisor was. Um, like he's like at one point was like president of like the of the AOS, the like uh association of of ornithological societies and um and yeah, that was my advisor's advice. And she referred to him as my as my academic grandfather or my advisor grandfather, essentially. Um, and and yeah, and like I definitely know, uh, I've connected with a lot of people through the lab I was in too, as if they were, yeah, as if they were family. So yeah. Now, before before your advisor, was there any like key person or people? when you were, you know, kind of learning the ropes that really took you under their wing, pun intended, um, and kind of, you know, helped you through Yeah, that. I mean, I definitely, not really one person. I mean, I kind of, I think when I was first starting out, um, Sean Gerwin and Brian O'Shea at the Museum of Natural Sciences were, definitely took me under their wing. Um, and I don't really talk to them much anymore because I don't live in Raleigh, but um, yeah, they were definitely really important and were like mentors when I was like really young. Um, and then definitely former 
former field job bosses who had hired me were really instrumental in getting me into grad school because they wrote um, letters of recommendations and just had unborn support when they, they were definitely there when I needed them and um, and and were really great. Yeah, we're essentially mentors during the job and then kind of continued to support me because you need letters of recommendation when you, not for jobs, but for when you apply to grad school. And so they they definitely, and I didn't have a lot of time to get the stuff in. It was like a pretty short, yeah, it was like a deadline and, and they, they jumped on it and I really appreciated that. So like they were definitely there when I needed them. Um, and uh, my advisor has been a great mentor too. And um, yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely not like one specific person now. I've, I've been lucky and kind of had, kind of had a resource of, of people who, who have come to support me when I need them. And, uh, and that's also kind of how I got this job too. And then, yeah. Do you want to tell us about your move to Colorado and, um, the beginnings of your master's and how that, that went for you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, so it was a really weird time. It was 2020 and I interviewed for it and got it and essentially like, well, so I, I interviewed for it like in probably February or March. And then I got, I was given the position in April of 2020 and just like between February to April that year was really weird. And, and I was supposed to start like right away in April, but uh, the pandemic hit. So I ended up not getting out there until July and I started my first field season in July, which is really late um, in Colorado. Um, and so it was like a lot of things were up in the air and it was a really weird, weird time to start grad school. Um, just because we like had to wear like masks in the field and whatnot. And, um, and then we didn't know if like and pretty much everything was online, but I was a teaching, I got like a teaching assistantship and I still had to, I still had to go in and, and teach. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so like I, I essentially drove across the country from Raleigh to Pueblo during, and I got there like early July. Um, and yeah, just like everything in my car and my whole life in my, in my car and, uh, and, you know, got lucky and found a beautiful house at the rent with some great roommates and, and uh, that was kind of my home base for two years. And um, I finished, I had three summers of field work, including the one that I started. And um, it was definitely like a long process due to COVID um, just because, yeah, I mean, there's a point where we had to wear masks out in the field um, and uh, it was hard to like get help sometimes. And um, yeah, and I had a lot of undergraduates that helped me out with my, with my work, which I was grateful for. And um and I, I definitely like while even through all of this, this jargon of the like election and and 2020, I still felt like kind of Colorado was going to become my next home. And and so I started kind of pretty early on, like looking for jobs. Um, and I ended up moving to Colorado Springs last summer and kind of like hoping because I was done with classes like all my coursework. And so I didn't really like need to be in Pueblo um, at the, you know, spring of 2022. And, um, and so I started like looking for jobs and then I ended up finding, I ended up finding one here in Fort Collins, which is uh, in Northern Colorado. And 
sort of not too far from the Wyoming border. So I, I've kind of now lived sort of across the, the I-25 corridor, um, which I-25 is a road that runs right through the middle of kind of the major population centers of Colorado going north to south. And, and um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really happy here. And, and it's, it's definitely turning to home and, and it's, I've always, I think I've always been drawn to the West. So I'm kind of glad I, I kind of am making my home base here. And, and I, I moved to Fort Collins in uh, the beginning of March. And so I've been here for about six months now. What, uh, what is your major uh, role in your current position? Right now I work on two jobs. My biggest role is with the sustainable grazing network, which is a, a, private land project in northern Mexico and it is focused on enrolling ranches in a program that benefits birds and the ranchers. We have grant money from multiple sources, a lot of federal sources and what's special about that is they can actually be used across borders. Uh, A lot of federal funds cannot and we Essentially, fun conservation projects on these ranches, such as if a ranch is overgrazed, we split it 50-50 with the rancher and we help do restorative techniques, uh, such as key lining, which is a technique that kind of breaks up the soil and leaves these like little ridges. And so it, it can actually kind of create, it can like collect water and also kind of stop like wind erosion. So like it kind of collects water and seeds and these like little divots. Um, and so that, that's that been very successful. We also do a lot of shrub removal, which is a huge issue in the Chihuahuan Desert. Uh, species like mesquite and other shrubs are, they're native, but they're actually being, they're encroaching on, on grasslands. And so um, there's lots of issues with that. Like this one species of shrub, I think it is mesquite. It it has a really long taproot, so it actually does kind of dry out the soil a bit. It uh, it's really good at collecting water, almost too good of a plant doing that because it kind of affects all the other um, plants around it. Uh, and so we're we're really focused on grassland birds and and doing that initiative. We have six hundred thousand acres of ranches enrolled in this program in Chihuahua, Mexico. And uh, across almost 30, 30 ranchers. Uh, and so I, I kind of manage that program. I assist in managing that program from abroad here in Colorado. And I'll make a couple site visits in the fall. Uh, and then my other project is actually working with the uh, with local government here in uh, Larimer County, such as the county uh, government and also the city of Fort Collins. Where I live and they contract us to survey their open spaces in natural areas for for birds and we do like an inventory for them every summer and so I'm just ending that project and it's called the Mounds of Plains project and it's been going on for uh, for 15 plus years and uh, it's it's good because the 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 county and the city have really grown in the past couple of decades and have bought a lot of land for public use. And so they kind of use us to inventory the land for birds and let them know what's important out there. Uh, and, and they, it, there's a lot of sensitive species like long spurs, which are 
similar to sparrows that breed out on these grasslands and and so we kind of help tell them where they are um and uh yeah one site that the city owns they've like introduced bison back onto the land and and i think i think a lot of our information helps kind of uh influenced you know where they graze and um is, yeah a lot of these properties do have cattle on them and so um a lot of people are usually surprised to say like to see that these projects support cattle grazing but it's not really the cattle that, that are bad it's really the the way you do it and 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 so i think a lot of our a lot of our programs kind of demonstrate that and and they are really important for uh, I mean, if, you know, the ranch wasn't there, it would, it would probably be a development. Um, and it would probably be like really intense monoculture of of something, farming farming something. And so I, I think they are really important for kind of keeping grasslands intact if you do it right. And, and Colorado has a lot of ranches that are enrolled in programs like this and kind of like what I do in Mexico. And, and I've definitely seen seen a difference. And grassland birds definitely thrive when when you do it right. And and on the project in, in Mexico, we're kind of, you know, it's kind of reaching, um, I think, close to its second decade. And and we, we're we definitely seeing a difference. We're, we're trying to quantify that right now, but um, we're definitely seeing a huge difference. And just like from photos of, of like this kind of shrubby, overgrown mess of, and then now it's like a beautiful grassland that there's um, lots of birds spend the time. So uh, my job is pretty cool because... I get to kind of do a full annual cycle. So like here I'm working in the summer with the same birds I'll be working with in Mexico because they migrate to Mexico and spend the winter in those grasslands down there. And, and so I kind of, but then they spend their, they breed up here in the summer. So I, I kind of get to do a full like annual cycle. That's really cool. Um, Actually my, my first introduction to the West, the first of, furthest west I've ever been before I moved here to Oregon um, was Fort Collins, Colorado. And that was okay. what I have family there. And so that was what it's like, oh man, I need to move west someday. And so I get it. Like seeing the mountains, seeing Colorado, it's like, I understand the desire to make a home base there and live there. When I was a kid that I went, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to move west because of this. And I think that has something to do with it Fort Collins. It's such a cool place. Yeah, what you do there is really cool work. Congratulations on this position. You've had this for six months. That's incredible. Um, so Thank congratulations you. on finding such a cool position. I was gonna say when when you did eighth grade Edward expect to uh grow up and work with ranchers in Mexico? No, he definitely did not. I think he was still pretty into snakes and stuff. So I think he was hoping he was gonna do that, but which, yeah, I mean, I definitely have to look back on and appreciate because uh, I'm pretty lucky and and I've, yeah, I've made it a lot farther than I thought I would. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited to kind of be doing research and then also, yeah, doing these conservation projects that make a huge impact. So, and I, yeah, I, and think... I work with a lot of cool people, too, who, who've made an impact and, and I'm learning from them. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm glad you said that because I was going to say, I think it highlights the importance of collaboration both within our field, but then also being able to work with people that don't have the same priorities, but we have a lot that we can work together on and benefit both of us, like working with the ranchers to, you know, work how they, they manage their ranges, but then also have it benefit the birds. So I think it speaks to the importance of 
those human relationships, which I don't think any wildlife student expects they're going to need when they get into the field. Yeah, wildlife management is people management. Um, that's what I was always taught. And it's, yeah, definitely rings true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Part of the reason I went into this field as a like socially awkward, introverted kid was like, oh, I'll just work with animals and be in the woods and I won't ever have to talk to people. And that's not the case. <laughs> but no. it's it's good. Yeah. It's good. I found a lot of fulfillment in it. Um, and speaking of fulfillment, um, where do you, you know, uh, this is, I guess, a tough question, but where do you find the most fulfillment in what you're doing now um, in Colorado? Yeah, I definitely, uh, I get a lot of that with my job. Yeah, and and I definitely like working with species that need the help and uh, kind of working with, yeah, just sort of growing and like learning from the people I work with too. Because uh, I, I, I am still pretty new in my career. And so I get a lot of fulfillment of, of that and kind of seeing my skills grow every day with the job. Um, and uh, also, yeah, definitely being like kind of true to myself and like making sure that I am living where I want to, which is Colorado. And you know, I'm pretty proud of making that work. And uh, and I've had a lot of fun out here and, and I kind of, hope to continue to do that with all the outdoor activities and uh, explore the state. Um, I do. Yeah. I do like to travel and I also do like to just explore like locally too. And so I get a lot of fulfillment from that. So from a, a person that was one time a young student who didn't think they would make it, who has now made it and are doing what they love and living where they want. What advice would you give to, the the next Edward or you know the people coming up that really want to work with birds but don't know how to do it or don't think that they can do it or don't think that there's a, a viable career there. Yeah, definitely. Like you're a lot more capable than you think you are. I I definitely kind of have like a gorilla style of like applying to things where I just like do it. I apply to everything, so definitely be open minded to any job posting you see and just uh, apply, 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 and uh, don't get hurt if you don't get it. And and I've definitely read a lot of postings have been like, I don't think I'm qualified for this, but I don't think there really is no perfect candidate because perfect does not exist. And so um, you, it's all really in relation to who else applies to these, to either a field job, a grad school position, or or a full-time job. And, and uh, you might just be the best fit. You never know. Uh, so I definitely would say apply, apply, apply. Um, experience is more important over the title of your job or the degree you have. So like I've met, you know, I've met English majors working in national parks. And so definitely don't let that stop you if this isn't your background, because we need we need people with different backgrounds in this field too as well. Um, and so if that's holding you back, definitely don't, because your skills might be really useful. Yeah, that's really good advice. Um, and I'm still doing that where I'm like, oh, I'm probably not qualified for this position um, because I don't meet all of these, these, you know, qualifications. Um, but that's not, that's not true. I've been forcing myself to apply to things that I don't think I'm qualified for. Um, so yeah, that's really good advice because it can be really intimidating, especially when you're just starting out. Um and seeing all these positions and being like, yeah, I'm not good enough for that, or I don't have experience with that. And also every single person in this field has been denied the job. So that's fine. That's part of the process. Yeah. So yeah, that's great advice. Um, 
And I think all of us were at one time in a spot where we're like, we're not going to make it. We can't. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, yeah. That happened to me more than once, especially during, you know, undergrad. I was like, there's no way I'm going to finish this degree. (laughs) It's tough, but it's, it's worth it. Do you have, so through all, throughout all of these experiences, do you have a favorite or multiple favorites um, field or research moments or stories, whether it be like a funny story or just something memorable um, that you want to share? Yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of those. Um, Definitely lots of heartbreak. Like my second, maybe like a moment was probably... It was heartbreaking, but like yeah, inspiring, I think, because uh, yeah, I, uh, one day I got to my field site. It was like my last, it was my second season uh, of my master's, and there had been like a, a really strong um, storm. It was not technically a hurricane, but there were definitely like 100 mile per hour winds, and it looked like a lawnmower had gone through the field site, and we had a bunch of equipment get destroyed. A lot of birds had like left or perished from the storm um like i f- had found a nest the day before and it was like squished um and then i was like feeling pretty down and i remember like looking and saw this like little race runner that had like was pretty stunned i think and he but he was like kicking and um and so i think i found that like inspiring because he was like i think he had yeah he had three legs and he was like yeah, he like ran away from me and he was like, you know, if this three-legged lizard could do it, why can't I? And so I think that that uh that inspired me. And um I watched him like catch a couple little bugs and whatnot. And so I thought that was that was actually how I found him. Was like I was sitting down, I was like thinking about what to do, and then and then I like there in the corner of my eye, I like saw this thing move and I got like really scared and I almost fell down and um, it was this, like, three-legged lizard that was, like, pretty slow because it hadn't really moved yet, but he was, like, catching bugs and moss and stuff, and, um, and, and so I, I was, like, and, and I, and he made such a big impact because he scared me, too, and, but he only had three legs, and, um, and, yeah, and I found that really inspiring, so thank you, three-legged lizard. That's a beautiful kind of way to see that, like, the you see the storm and you see the effect it has, but then you also get a renewed hope. Yeah. Before we, before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to say about humidity or moisture? Uh, Yeah, definitely. If you're going from, if you're going from dry to humid, the opposite of what I did, be prepared. Like leave your, leave your camera, your binoculars, or if you wear glasses, let them like, don't let them sit in the air conditioning. Maybe put them in your car so when you walk outside, it doesn't fog up. That's my advice. Yeah, that's good. That's good advice on humidity. Um, we 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 don't need to keep all the humidity stuff, but it's just yeah, you can have it. I just really like talking to you about humidity. I think. Yeah. No, you can call me anytime about humidity. Yeah, it's a, a key bonding <laughs> experience. Well. Thank you um, so much, Edward, for joining us on this fine Saturday morning. Dan, it's the middle of the night day morning for you, I think. But but yeah, thank you so much for coming on here and telling us about your experiences. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. And I look forward to listening to it and the rest of your podcast. Oh, thank you so much. And I also want to say thank you for for 
all that you do for wildlife and Mm -hmm. you are also just such a laid back patient person. I know a lot of uh, herp people and bird people can be very high strung and that can be very stressful when you don't know what you're doing and you're just getting into it. Um, But I'll say you, you always made me feel comfortable when I transferred to North Carolina and I didn't know anything about birds. I was just very into herps, but you were always very patient and uh, it, it was always so much fun to go out with you and always learn stuff. And I think has also kind of pushed me to, to want to learn more about birds and um, share, share what I learn like you do. So thank you, Edward. 